Last week we started uh, in uh, the answering uh, some of the difficult questions uh, and, and hard questions of, of Scripture, uh, especially with our cultural influence in the church at times and, and, and how the church, how the culture feels about the church when it stands on its biblical principles. Uh, we have some interesting things to look at. Alan started last week with talking about uh, the context of being a Christian man, and uh, certainly in our culture, that's not an, an, an easy thing anymore. In fact, for a Christian man or a Christian woman, a Christian child, kids that are Christians that are going to public schools uh, have difficult times. It, uh, they, uh, we find it in our colleges, our junior colleges, our universities, uh, where uh, those who stand in their faith uh, are frequently mocked and ridiculed. So, it is a, a, an important thing for us to look at what it means to be a Christian man or a Christian woman or, or to look at marriage, uh, at Christian marriage. And so, over the next few weeks, we're going to continue what Alan started last week, uh, looking at what it does mean to be a Christian man and, uh, or a Christian woman, a Christian person uh, in, the, in the church today, uh, men and women in the church and in marriage as well. And today, as we continue in that, I notice you, you, you have a word in the, in the bulletin that says complementarianism. What is it? And uh, that's probably the biggest word I know. Uh, and so, uh, other than one from a, an old movie, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and I found out that that actually does have a meaning now because it's been around long enough. But the actual word is supercalavegilisticexpialidocious, and that does have a meaning too. But anyway, those are a side point. Uh, today, as we continue in this, what I would like to do is drop back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, looking at creation account. And uh, the verses that I'll ultimately fo- focus on is uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 31. But I'm going to go back and, and, and look uh, at the at the beginning, and it's, so we're going to take a little bit of time to to look through this. Um, we have the the obvious beginning of things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, "Let there be light." There was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And we go on to look at the other days of creation, and there's a kind of a side note that was drawn out to me, this was a number of years ago uh, when I was in Bible college, but the, the interesting thing is, is that you have three things happening there in chapter 1, in the beginning, the heavens and the earth. And the beginning is the, is the initiation of time. There was, there, we didn't have time before the beginning. Okay? It was infinite. Okay? So we have the initiation of time. And then we have the heavens, which is representative, and you can go to a Hebrew study on it, is space. And we have earth, which is matter. And so you have time, space, and matter, which are the th- things we need for things to exist and, and have their dimensional characteristics and stuff like that. And so it's right there in the beginning is, is we have a, a, a picture of science, and I love it. 
the Bible does speak to science and it speaks accurately. And uh, I just uh, uh, wanted to draw that out as, as a picture there for you this morning. But in the creation account, we have multiple times where God goes through each day and He says it is good. Verse 10, He comes to it and He says it is good. Verse 12, 18, 21, 25, He says it is good. And so He's pronouncing, the as He's putting it all together, this is a good thing. Then we come to uh, the Scriptures that I want to look at today. Uh, very specific part of creation. And it says in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree that with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that He made and behold, it was very good. It's important to catch that. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The reason why that's important to catch is that he's put the whole thing together now. And he's talking about it. And everything that is good, as it comes together and is orchestrated and the symphony is kind of playing its way out, he says now it's very good. It's, it's fantastic. It's exactly what it needs to be. And I think that, that we sometimes, we're, we're so busy, at least I, I, I see it myself, taking things apart and wanting to know what each little part means of something. And I'm very good at compartmentalizing, putting everything into its little compartment. I used the picture the other day of putting everything in, you know, uh, in its train boxcar, you know, in a train. And here's this, and here's this, and I'm looking at things individually. And sometimes we forget to look at the whole. And I, this drew my attention back to the fact that as God looked at the whole thing, He says it's very good. And, and the whole of creation was before Him. It's the, the word complementary and is, is one that applies here. It means working together, completing one another. Everything is working together in harmony, completing each other, making everything come together and work. The, another word that uh, you use uh, could be synergy. When two or more agents work together to achieve something either one couldn't have achieved on its own. In other words, all of it working together creates a bigger picture, a bigger thing than any part of it by itself. The whole being greater than the sum of its parts is another way of putting it. 
I want to go back to verse 27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. And male and female, He created them. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blessed them. Male and female. He said, be fruitful and multiply. To subdue is to take control of the earth. Take control of it. To have dominion means to be in charge of. God appointed them some some people use the term vice regents. Uh, in, in other words, they they were still had you know answer to God as the ultimate you know, but they were in charge. They they had control over the things that were going on. They were to take and subdue. They were to walk through the 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 the, the creation that God had given them and 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 oversee it to be managers of it. So God blessed them. He said, "Be fruitful." And multiply, subdue, and have dominion. And the only way that that would work is if male and female are working together. It won't happen if they're apart from each other. Again, it takes the, 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 the complementary part coming together and working together as a unit. It isn't surprising when you think about it that God says in, in reference to marriage, and Christ repeats it as well, uh, they, the two shall become one flesh. Working together. The only part of creation that's created in God's image is man and woman, male and female. Created in God's image has a lot of things that to you know to try to describe it but we are unique in in among the things of creation now those of you who love your animals please don't take offense okay and my wife will tell you that I love my dog so uh you know but the the the, the reality is the dog, while it's a created animal and it's part of God's kingdom, it's not in God's image. And you start to think, what is God's image? Part of, it, part of it might say, well, Scripture tells us that God is spirit and we worship Him in spirit. And how, do we, how are we in His image? Well, the part of it is that picture. I believe it has to do with our soul, our spirit. It has to do with the fact that God has given us the ability to reason and think and create and be creative unlike animals as a whole. I recall uh, a, a, a thing in, in, in when I was at uh, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. The, the study was, you know, they were looking at otters and, and Morro Bay at that time had a lot of otters and, and Morro Bay was also a, a big abalone area. And... Uh, one of the favorite things of an otter to do is to go and 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 uh, get an abalone uh, off the thing, and it'll even use a rock as a tool to do it. 
uh, and it also uses a rock to, as a tool to, to chisel out the meat and stuff like that and lay it on its back and, and do this. And they were talking about, well, you know, how they, how they learn to do this from their, their mother, who is the one that's with them as they grow up and, and go through this, and that this is what they learn from their mother. And some of them are saying, no, they, they have, this is, we're not talking, this is something that God has put in them. Well, no, we don't talk about God, you know. Uh, and, and so they actually did a study. And they took the, and I'm not sure what they call baby otters, other than baby otters, there's a term for it, but, huh? Cubs? Pups, okay. They took the pups and, 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 and separated them from the mother at birth. And, and so they were born in captivity. They were raised in captivity, and, and then they had uh, cameras set up and underwater and above water and stuff in and, and, and Morro Bay, a very elaborate setup going, and they, when they released them, the first thing they did was to go down to the bottom of the water, pick up a rock, and go after an abalone. They'd never seen one, they did, and they, but they did it automatically. God has put them in a way, in such a way, to know what they need to do to survive. We get the opportunity to think about it. We have to train each other. We have to grow up and, and, and realize that there's things. And some people are going to point out and say, well, there's some animals that do learn things from their, their, their parents. Yes, there is. But what we're talking about is the ability to really reason, to think. My dog does not sit there and say or reason, oh, I'm a dog. But we think and reason, oh, I am a person. I'm a human. God has given us the ability to do that. Why? Why is this uniqueness of the, in His image so important? Was it because He did it to create a, a relationship? God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had a relationship in existence, and they were bringing us into that relationship. God wanted a relationship with us. And so He created us with the ability to have that, to commune with Him, to talk with Him. To walk with Him. And we see that emphasized in Scripture, especially in the beginning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 makes it clear that this was the plan before the foundation of the world, by the way. That God had this idea of, of you know, before the foundation of the world, before creation started. You know, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to create this and, and build this together. And uh, man was blameless. He was sinless. I think the word might be innocent. And then we have Genesis 3. Chapter 3 and the fall. Changes. This holy, blameless, sinless, innocent person. And what do we find Adam and Eve doing in chapter 3 of, 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 of Genesis? When the God comes in the garden to walk with them? Hiding. Why were they hiding? Because now they knew that they were naked. Being naked before that point in their innocence had no problem. But having eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil... They now had thoughts that they never had before in reference to impropriety and, uh, and, and, and this type of thing, and thoughts of, of, that were negative. They tried to hide their bodies. 
And at that point, even then, God begins the work of restoring. The work of bringing things back together. The work that is completed at the cross. In the words, it is finished. When we read in Genesis chapter 3, uh, we look at, at, at uh, what Adam and, and, and Eve and the judgment that comes upon them. And, uh, of course, we, we go through it and, and Adam, God holding Adam accountable says, what have you done? What was Adam's response? Well, God, it's the woman you gave me. And we all always kind of chuckle at that, but the reality is, is that he was at that point saying, God, you gave me the woman, and look what she's done. She started this. Immediately shifting the blame. What did the woman do? The devil made me do it. Shifting the blame. So when we get to the time of of judgment, starting with verse 14 of chapter 3, we realize the serpent is judged. And then in verse 16 it says, To the woman He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth uh, children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, in your Scripture there, how many of you have a, 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 a noting uh, there where it says, shall be for? And then there's a, a noting to look down at the bottom of the page. Okay. Mine, it's, uh, it's a two and it says, or against. The phrasing here is, 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 is something that unless we, we catch that, you're gonna, your desire will be against your husband. In other words, you're going to try to control him. But he is going to rule over you. What's that telling you? Is that there's going to be strife now in a relationship that was meant to be in harmony together. There's going to be strife. Both the husband and the wife are going to want to be into control. And all through history we have seen this off and on, but the overall picture is that man has been the one that has been the one to put women under the thumb. All through history we see it. Another picture of looking at this because of the meanings of the words was that your desire shall be this idea of desire is to long for something. It was The idea was that you might long for a compassionate man, but you're going to get a ruler. But the, no matter how you look at it, the picture was just going to be there's going to be strife where there was no strife before. So, as we look at this, husband, man, woman, wife, we see that God intended initially a particular picture. God knew all along. Before the foundation of the world, again, God put in the plan of salvation into effect as well as all of the rest. He knew what was going to happen. And as it, it happens, He brings the judgment and then turns around and lets them know, though, that He is going to be with them and that there will be hope. 
Now, I just share that to make sure that we have a, a clear picture of in the beginning God created and what God put together. He wanted it to be in a, in a, in a form of, of complementary, uh, interacting and working together as a whole. Uh, we're used to looking at everything in its parts. God was looking at it as a whole. And I want you to go back to verse 27 again and note that male and female were created in his, his image. And the way it's put there is that they were created equal in his image. Extremely important that we grasp this. Male and female equal in God's image. Because we have Scripture that tells us about the different roles that husbands and wives play in marriage or that we have in the church where we have men that are elders, not women, uh, we, this type of thing. And, and, and God has put that in t- together in such a way that Here's what the men will do. Here is what the women will do. They're equal in, in, in value, but they have different assignments, if you will, different things to, that are part of who they are and what they will do. And they are complementary. They, they, they come together in a sense of, of forming a whole together. Paul acknowledges in Galatians chapter 3, and we read it, that there's there's not there's no slave there's no master there's no Greek there's uh, there's no Jew there's no male there's no female in the context of as we stand before the throne of God we are all equal. Paul acknowledges this. Once we put on Christ, it's equality for all of us. Together, we are the church. We are the bride of Christ. Even that sometimes is hard for, for some people to grasp hold of. They're thinking men as the bride of Christ. But remember, that we're not dealing with, with the connotation of male and female anymore. We're, the, the, we're dealing with the children of God and, and the body of Christ and His bride. We are the bride of Christ. They're equal in every way as we go through it together. And again... Keep this in mind, male and female are the only part of creation that's in the image of God. Equal in worth, but also equally fallen. I thought that was an interesting phrase. It's not mine. It came out of, uh, out of a, an article from, uh, I found in the Gospel Coalition uh, website. But, you know, equally fallen. How fallen is, is a person who, you know, can one person be more fallen than the other? Not scripturally, not before the throne of God. How much, does it, how much sin does it take to be fallen? You're used to rhetorical questions. I was looking for an answer. <laughs> Somebody said it, just one. One missing the mark is all it takes. And we deserve the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. This is what we deserve. We're, we were created equal in worth and we were equally fallen and God has put a value on us even then in the sense of through the cross. And so that we have this picture that all the men and women who are saved, we are equally saved. One isn't saved more than the other. 
when Romans 8 says there's no condemnation, doesn't have doesn't say there's 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 no condemnation for men, or there's a little you know it, 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 it doesn't separate out. It's just no condemnation for a believer, man or woman. We are all children of God, male and female. We are joint heirs with Jesus. All things we work together for the good for those who are called according to His purpose, male and female. The world does not support this biblical picture. When we define roles in biblical roles in Scripture, and I'll use the one for elders in a church. You go through Paul's writings to Titus and Timothy both, and we realize it makes it very clear that the role is that of a man. And because of that, a large part of our culture would say that we are narrow-minded, misogynistic, chauvinists, uh, anti-women's rights. There's a lot of things that go with that. So much so that we've seen over the last, probably really over the last hundred years, but, but in the 20th and 21st century, a, a, a big change in a lot of ways that churches have chosen to look at this. And they chose to take Galatians chapter 3, which we've read where there's no, no Greek, no Jew, no slave, no master, no male, no female, and turn around and say, therefore, there's no job descriptions anymore. Whatever a man can do, a woman can do. Whatever a woman can do, a man can do. Now, we're going to turn around and say there's some physical limitations there. Obviously, childbearing is one of them. <laughs> but, but the idea is that they have chosen to throw out everything that Scripture says in reference to male roles. And one of them I'm referring to would be found in Ephesians chapter 5. Where it says the husband is the head of the church. Of the, of the, excuse me, of the wife. You realize that there are descriptions even within the Godhead of role and responsibility and submission? Submission. Isn't that an ugly word in our culture today? To submit means to give up, as far as people are concerned, to give up our rights. From a Christian point of view, to submit is initially to get into our salvation. To submit to Jesus Christ. Submission is not an evil word. It's not a bad word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, interesting picture that is given to us here. Verse 3, I want you to understand, Paul writing to the Corinthians, I want you to understand that the head of every man 
is Christ. Christ is the head of the church. He's a, uh, he is our head. He's our director. He's the one we submit to. The head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God, referring to the Father. Wait a minute. Jesus and God are equal, right? Yes. It wasn't something that Jesus looked to grasp a hold of. It says that he didn't have to grasp at it. It was something that he had. And yet it says that Christ is in submission to the Father. Where did we see that so clearly? On the cross and in the garden. Not my will, but thy will be done. What I'm trying to say is just simply that the word submission is not a wrong thing. It's not a bad thing. And the fact that we have order of, of, of role models and, and roles to play out within the framework of what God has given us as men and women, and they are different, doesn't mean you know, you know, you've lost your freedom. If anything, you have gained your freedom. And somebody's going to look at me and say, how do you get freedom by, by, by submission? Because you become what you were created to be. What was given to me was a picture of a, of a train. And some of you are going, they've probably heard this, and I don't know whether it was typical of Bible college, uh, different teachers and stuff, but that's where I heard it first. And the idea of the train is wanting its freedom. And it wants to do whatever it wants to do. And it finally jumps the track and goes down a ravine. And now it's stuck. Why? Because it's no longer fulfilling its purpose. But while it was on the track and fulfilling its purpose, it was free to be what it was created to be. And as a result, could move. And I thought, what an interesting picture. Because it's what it is is to say, when I am free in Christ, I am what I'm meant to be. And when I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm sidetracked. <laughs> I'm off the, off the rail. I'm, I'm, I'm not moving in the right direction. I may not be moving at all. Christ's work on the cross brings us into a relationship with the Father when we receive Christ as our Savior. When we conf- Romans puts it in a very simple format. When we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, we are saved. And in that relationship of being saved, we are back to becoming what God wants us to be. The children of God. And again, when we become that picture, the children of God, going back again to Romans, there's no condemnation. We are out from underneath the judgment of our sin. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Paul ends chapter 7 with the battle between flesh and soul and spirit and says, wretched man that I am in, what hope is there? And he says, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then it goes right into chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We find there again joint heirs with Jesus, children of God. And a, and a confidence that God is working even when we can't see it. 
when we are where God wants us to be, when this word complementary comes into picture, not just husband and wife, but it's a philosophy. Somebody says, you know, can you be a complementarian and be single? And the answer is yes. Because you're still part of the overall picture of what God has put together. And I keep coming back to it. Everything is good, good, good. And then he stands back and he puts the whole thing together and says, very good. Verse 28 of Romans 8. All things work together for the good, for, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who have turned to rest in Christ, He is our sovereign. He is our head. We are in a complementarian relationship with Him. With His Word. We're incomplete without it. Puts us back into order. And we have that confidence. But even what I don't understand, even when I see something, I have to tell you, I, 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 I don't understand and battle with it. And, and this is, becomes very personal and very narrow-minded because of my pers- perspective on it. But my son dealing with cancer at 29 years old. I would have expected that to be me. I'm the one that did harm to my body. I'm the one with dead silica in my lungs that I'm a prime candidate for lung cancer. I'm the one, you know, and I'm almost 70 and haven't had those things. And my son is only 29 and he's dealing with cancer. I can't see in the, the tangible sense where God's going to do something good in this. But He has told me because I am resting in Him, because I am in that relationship with Him, and, and, and as a man or a woman, it doesn't make any difference. We are in that relationship with Him, confessed and believe in our heart. He is God. We are saved because of that relationship. He has promised that there is something good in the midst of that that I can't see yet. We have such a different perspective on life than the world does. Christian men, Christian women, we have such a different perspective on life than the world does. We have a hope. An absolute promise. And when we say hope, it's not that wishy-washy thing and saying, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I want to do this or that. It's an absolute guarantee that the God of all creation is resting as my Savior and covering. He is my head. I am His child. I am heirs with Him. It's all promised. And not because of anything that I did, but because of what He has done. Going clear back to the beginning when God promised something to Eve. He says, your seed will rise up. I didn't read that part yet. In in first Corinthians er, in Genesis chapter three. Where it's speaking of the judgment against the serpent. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this uh, cursed are you all the life 
above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly, you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring, her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's an ancient picture. To have the heel bruised. How many of you have ever had a heel bruise? And at sudden, what happens? You don't stay on your feet. You go down. Okay. He says, you're going to take her seed down. You're going to bruise his heel. But he's going to rise up and crush your head. And the idea of that is that he is going to absolutely destroy your power and authority. That promise in the midst of the fall, in the midst of the judgment, there's a promise of God's intervention. The defeat of Satan. The defeat of death. Death, we've sang it this morning. Where is your sting? Where is your victory? It's gone. By the way, death isn't our friend. You know, you've heard me say this hundreds of times, I know. But death isn't our friend. He doesn't, you know, people say, you know, death ushers us into the kingdom of God. No. Death is the result of sin and it always has been, always will be, and it's always, the, you know, but it's lost its sting, it's lost its victory over us because we no longer belong to the kingdoms of the world. We belong to the kingdom of God. So, I, again, all of this is to say we as men and women in, in the church, we are different than the world. And we have a good reason to be different. God has called us out. He has embraced us and opened our eyes to His kingdom, to His Word, and has promised us His covering for eternity. And He did it through the cross. That's where Satan bruised his heel. At the cross. But we see Three days later, what happened, don't we? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death has been conquered. The grave has been conquered. Every time we go to communion, we, we, we take all of this. We should take all of this into account in a sense. Communion isn't just a part of what we do. It's a picture of what has happened. All that God has done. And it is very good. <laughs> and He's included us in it. And so as we share in the bread, as we share in the cup, we share in the reality of the body of Christ and His shed blood and, and, and reaffirm our commitment to Him. And it's an opportunity for us to turn around and say, Lord, Forgive me for falling short because every one of us have. And for those of you who aren't as short as I am, then you didn't fall short. You missed the mark. But either way, it works. We missed the mark. God's perfect holiness is here. And I missed the mark. I have sinned. I come to Him and I confess and He is faithful and just and restores me to all righteousness. 
as if I had never sinned at all. What a what a powerful picture. And and I want to confirm one other thing what we go into as we go into communion. We don't walk in and out of our salvation. When we're saved, we're saved. He tells us at the end of chapter 8 of Romans all of the things that will come against us, all the different things that are there. And he says, God's, we, can't, we can't get out from underneath God's law. We are saved. Because there is a picture some have that's very tenuous. There's a line here and I'm on this side of the line and I'm confessed and I'm clean and up to date and I'm forgiven and I'm going to heaven. Oops, I've sinned. Unless I get that confession in line, I, my, my, my salvation is in jeopardy. Catholic Church fixed that. They, they came up with purgatory. There's no such thing. You either are or you aren't. And if you are, you are. Because of what Christ has done. The work is finished. He said so on the cross. Let's share communion together. And ask as this, the ushers come and pass the communion out. Hold it until we've all been served and we'll share it together. <coughs>